I think it's so interesting that in capitalism, we have to buy everything. We, we, we have to buy our birth. We have to buy our death. We have to buy our mental health. We have to buy our healing. We have to buy our food. We're buying everything, but not getting most often our core needs met. Welcome back to Possibility Now with Ethan Hughes. I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Today, we're gonna be exploring the end of capitalism and five alternative models, which Ethan calls liberation economies. It's an important topic and one Ethan is very passionate about. So I'm excited and grateful to be able to share his insights. Let's get started. All right, welcome Ethan. How are you doing today? What's what's alive in your heart? Uh, I'm feeling excited to to share what we've been learning in 20 years of this life experiment and also a little nervous cuz uh be weaving in issues of race and colonization and just uh yeah, hoping to hoping to speak mindfully from where I'm positioned as a white hetero man. Yeah, thank you so much for naming that. And I think it might be helpful to just name today is July 12th, 2020, because so much is happening in this world and so much seems to be changing every day. So it might be uh, good to ground us in the context of where we are in this moment in time. So Ethan, what, uh, what topic would you like to discuss today? It's a big topic. It's about uh, the end of capitalism, the end of colonial capitalism that requires racism and destruction of the planet to function. So to find our way out, we need something different. So we have what we call liberation economies, five economies that help us move away from what most people don't want but feel trapped in. It's important to also name economy is the care of home. Like ecology is the study of home. And so to reclaim that word too, I think is important that economics is how to care for home, each other in the natural world, in our community, our elders, our children, those who are oppressed or left out. So yeah, I'll start with that as just reclaiming economies as a as a beautiful practice and our modern economies are doing the opposite. So that's fascinating. So you're saying it's not just about money. It's not just about going and buying uh, donuts or an, a new iPhone. That's what I think of when I think of economy. Yeah. We're talking about economies. How do we actually care for our home? How do we keep everyone in a beautiful way fed sheltered, moving towards their gift, towards the community? Um, how do we have not just, how do we have resources that we really need, belonging and, and purpose and these things that don't register uh, on Wall Street? It'd be amazing to o- open a paper in 20 years and say, here's the economics report. Loneliness is an epi- epidemic. We're not doing well but people are finding their purpose. That spike is up, you know, like just a whole new way. Um, the economics or business section would be, you know, the indicator of how alive we are and how much actual justice and equality there is. Wow, that's beautiful. I guess to start, I'm just curious, why is this a topic that is on your heart right now? Um, what is it that most moves you personally? I, I think it's, 
it started when I inherited a large amount of money. I didn't have the the awareness of what was stolen from indigenous people, people of color as deep inside of me or the awareness of what was happening to the natural world with modern colonial capitalism. And I just gave everything away and wanted to see what it was like living in what is called the gift or originally Lao Tzu was to gain everything, give everything up. And so it started there and I just found extreme shifts of like incredible fear and incredible aliveness and also what it felt like to give <clears throat> to communities in need and to, to liquidate all of those resources. It wasn't just money, but it was physical things. And, um, and that started my path. And so 20 years later, running a, a project called the Possibility Alliance, we've had to figure out how do we, how can we function with as little amount of money as possible? As money is connected to empire, it's the Federal Reserve. And I, I, I do believe that wherever we're using money, something is, it means something is broken in our community. Because we're, for example, I want therapy, everyone has a therapist in trauma work. Everyone is taught it in school. And we don't have to pay for that core need of being mentally or physically healthy. It's just an example of the oppression of having to pay for our physical health, which for three million years was never the case. There was always healers that were abundant. So I feel like it's a, if we're to unravel colonialism and racism and heteropatriarchy and the sixth extinction and climate emergency, capitalism is like the, the hub of all of those extraction slavery pieces. So I, I, yeah, I think it's really important for us to start leaning in. I hear everyone say capitalism equals racism. Capitalism is patriarchy because it's destroying oppressing women and female-bodied people and the earth. And we hear that, but what I want to start to lay out is just a guess from direct experience and from amazing people doing experiments like Sherry Mitchell or Leah Penniman and Robin Wall Kilmer of Braiding Sweetgrass. I'm going to talk about them and how indigenous and black people help radicalize my, my analysis. So I just want to throw out a beginning map that people can start trying. And and again, it comes from 20 years of direct experiments. Um, and we have a long way to go, but I hope this is helpful. So just to understand where, you're, where you are on this issue, is money itself bad? Inherently, is money bad? It's a complex topic, but I think with the American dollar bill, we have to first look at what are the power structures that are printing those and giving them to us. So it's not a community-based where we come up with something that works as a filler for trade or barter. We have a power over structure of, of money that's backed and protected by white supremacists and, and you know, really colonial structures backed by the biggest war machine on the planet. So when we can look at the 2008 collapse when there was manipulation on loans and mortgages and 
we're in a structure where if we don't take control of that and have equal power, we end up having people who created theft and lying getting $20 million packages from our tax money when someone who has been oppressed for 500 years and steals an orange or some food goes into the penal system and it just it's tied into the mass incarceration and so i i think if we don't look at the powers money is not neutral because it's controlled by a power system that's enslaving bipoc people it's it's creating military outposts all over the world so that's the first question is this dollar bill can't be neutral because it's tied into and controlled by empire how many how many bills are printed where it goes we can look right now with the covid two point something trillion and we get people get twelve hundred dollar check in the mail and celebrate but we realize that the other trillion and a half went to the one percent that during covid billionaires increased profits by an average of eight percent the numbers might be different so we see that there's a whole power system that we have to be aware of when we start talking about an american dollar not money in general of like some groups used shells as a representation of trade and but something that we as a local community are in equal powership especially that whatever system we come up with that those who have been most marginalized have a seat at the table trans queer black indigenous to create what kind of system is going to truly create equality and we see in the civil rights movement in the end in so many movements that what hasn't changed the economic situation that's the one that's always locked we're in the biggest gap of haves and have-nots and so i think that's why this is so important because it's about unravel unraveling capitalism is about unraveling empire mm. and living in a beloved community on the other side of it mm. beautiful so i yeah here the the deep needs to change the system itself and um yeah i'd love to jump into it um what are what are some of the uh the five alternative systems or the five alternative economies that you'd like to discuss today um before jumping into that i would like to just speak about how um I see many of us <clears throat> get hooked. And I want to start with a great quote by Leah Penniman. And she runs a, a collective of many people called Soul Fire Farm, which is a black and people of color led farm in New York. And yeah, this is a quote from her that's really inspiring. She says this, Fannie Lou Hamer, who's a wonderful hero from the civil rights, talks a lot about this. She was the founder of the Freedom Farm Co-op in Sunflower County, and she had 70 families living there. And she said, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned for the winter, no one can push you around and tell you what to do. So, you've, so, if, so if you're, in contrast, really depending on the empire, depending on a system that hates you for all your basic sustenance, you're not going to be able to really resist that system because you're intertwined with its success. And that last part, that we can't resist it when we're so intertwined, and that's where I feel people feel trapped, is they're like, wow, half of our economy is built from the war economy. That's our driving capital, is building and selling arms. At one point, 
years ago, 86% of all weaponry was produced and sold from the U.S. worldwide. So how do you participate in capitalism without being part of this giant war economy, um, the industrial, global, economic, educational matrix, white supremacist? So, and that's hard because when we hear that, I think the biggest conspiracy of our time that's real, that, that we've come to believe is we have to kill, we have to enslave, we have to oppress in order to get our needs met. And that's when we look out, that's just what I think we've all come to believe because the alternative seems so impossible. Yet human beings were doing that for millions of years, but yet we've lost that capacity um, to see that. So I think going into how do we get locked is important. And there's two axioms that I don't know the source of these axioms, but my friend Adam Campbell taught them to me. And I really feel like this is the beginning of our hook into colonial capitalist systems. Uh, Axiom one is we live in a scarce world, scarcity of money or time or love or understanding, belonging, self-esteem. And so axiom two says if there is scarcity, it makes sense that when axiom one is true, when we believe it's true that there's not enough of these things, people start to act out of their own self-interest for gain because there's limited resources perceived, there's limited. So thus, the haves and have-nots and war, all that starts from these things. So I, I always, when I'm talking about this, I invite everyone listening to just take a breathe in, breath, and think of what was the first moment you felt that immense scarcity, the scarcity that actually through fear turns us into consumers. And so for me, that first moment was when my dad was hit and killed by a drunk driver. My mom was a single mom working 70 hours a week. And all of a sudden, there I was with uh, scarcity of time, scarcity of money. Um, Where were we going to get the next rent? And I know and want to honor across the world, people are in much more extreme situations than that. But the point is, I think when I ask anyone this question, they all have that moment. They might have been living with lots of money and they had a total deficit of belonging or attention. And so then there's this wound that starts activating, you know, the dopamine response when we buy something online or all these other ways to try to fill that wound. So everyone is leaning into scarcity on some spiritual, emotional, physical level. So then these axioms start to feed themselves up we saw that in Occupy, which again I celebrate as an amazing movement that shifted important things. But the other piece was Occupy was asking for a piece of the pie. And so if the piece of the pie comes with oppression and slavery and racism, we have to reconsider. Like Ella Baker and the wonderful leaders of the civil rights movement said, we, we actually see that's making you sick or so many wonderful indigenous peoples just saw, wow, we saw the sickness of the white people that all this wasn't, wasn't helping, wasn't helping the community, wasn't helping the earth. So I think our, we need to go deeper from sharing, you know, the blood money or empire money to creating something totally new. It's a very, 
um, we'll go over the five uh, liberation economies, and one of them is a reparations paradigm, because unless we're uplifting these communities that have been cut out and raped and killed for centuries, we're just going to create another form of white supremacist system. So, yeah, so that's an important thing to think about is how we are getting crumbs on all levels. And so that is fueling the panic and the consumerism. And we are then can be controlled because without money right now, you don't have food, shelter, clothing. You don't have guaranteed for your your children. And I, I, this is arising with me. Once at a conference in Memphis about uh, poverty in the black community, a lot of well-meaning, including myself, white people showed up. And um, there's a black man who got up in front and said, you know, you're all coming to the city telling me if I want to buy a house, I'm part of the, I'm working for the empire. And you know, I and he said, our family hasn't owned something for three generations. Like there's no guarantee for the security of my children. If you come to my city, can you listen to what I'm actually needing? And it's easy for someone who's a white anarchist to live in a squat, knowing that if something happened to him, they have a middle class family that can support them in the end. And there's just zero safety nets for uh, people in urban areas. Um, and that safety net is across the board gone for so many communities, indigenous, black, and also um, white poverty too. So there's what we're talking about here is a is such a huge shift um, because it's not justice to say, oh, well, I'll live in dug fur huts in the woods or, you know, some back to the land uh white dream that doesn't take into account we're, we're on stolen land so how do we how do we actually heal um, all these legacy burdens for so long so that's a background of the situation we're in yeah thank it's you a, it's just a one perspective what i'm seeing and talking to hundreds of people what what people are feeling is that trap thank you if i'm being honest with myself a part of me is feeling quite overwhelmed by the topic um, because it seems like it's so massive and it's so many um, decades and centuries in the making and i guess i'm wondering what people listening to this podcast um, if they individually have a role in dismantling the system, um, is there something that people out there can do to empower themselves to um, make real changes on what seems like, um, yeah, just an absolutely gigantic system? Yeah, that's what I think, you know, we should shift into uh, because I think the parallel systems is what empowers us if we hear, for example, if I... I've been called in many times for participating in heteropatriarchy and the times I've been called in and the people calling in do not have a path out like hey do this training or I'll sit with you for an hour or here's these resources it's really an uncomfortable situation in nonviolent communication Marshall Rosenberg says the gap between the need and the request needs to be tiny because if you know someone's suffering and you you 
need that request so you can actually act like at the core one of our core needs is to actually make other people's lives wonderful if we're not suffering from trauma and and also basically conditioning like i'm born into a white supremacist heteropatriarchy colonial system i just live and breathe in it and so but yeah so i think it's important to maybe start shifting into the five economies which are each each one in itself is a lot to uh undo one one thing i think is important is redefining wealth like at the beginning that real wealth meets real human needs so we're seeing that no amount of money cures depression or isolation um i think that's also energetically sherry mitchell who's the author of sacred instructions talks about quantum entanglement that we're all actually physics and spiritually interdependent so even if i'm if my wealth is coming from clear cutting in the rainforest or building bombs i'm connected to that not in a way that i should feel guilty but the pieces my whole being is feeling it's like i'm sawing off my arm to have all of these things um that aren't actually needs like they're the number one human need in studies around the world in all uh, cultures is to belong. It, uh, Brene Brown talks about this. is When you feel like you are being pushed out or shamed or pushed out of a group, what happens inside your body is similar to being charged by a woolly mammoth. All these endorphins and adrenaline, it... In the studies, it's similar to being physically punched in the face. It's such a panic because when we're in a healthy care of home economies, we need each other or we don't make it. Capitalism allows uh, the greatest moment of individualism in our life. We People say it's progress, Ethan. So you wake up in the morning, you're alone. You go out to eat alone. You can make all your food and you're in your apartment and you can spend your whole day alone and get what you need, and we call that progress. When our number one need isn't for things, our number one need is for belonging, belonging to other humans. So redefining wealth is important in the beginning to realize that, yeah, we need uh, belonging and love. Is a, Belonging is a number one need, and then we can go down the list. So that's an important shift uh, realizing that it actually doesn't give us what we need to thrive. So I'm going to go through the liberation economies in the order that they were developed or discovered. So it definitely started in the gift, uh, the gift economy. And I, I love this quote from Hafiz. The sun never says... The sun never says to the earth, even after all this time, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lightens the entire world. It's like when we look at the cosmos, everything is a giving and receiving. 93 million miles away, the sun's just, and there's life. There's no... Nothing happening except this great gift. There's nothing owed, so it, it 
belonging happens the 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 earth was born from the sun planetary nebula um so there's this 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 feeling when people hear poems like that there's like a remembering but then you look at your bank account you're like how the how am i going to do this so we all can look at water like water hits the highest point and flows water is the core of life for the earth and the more that it flows the more life there is so Cahil Gabran said, to withhold is to perish. So as we're withholding anything, Kabir says, I've never met an intelligent rich person who could withhold when thousands of people are in need of these resources to have food, shelter, and follow their, their spirit journey. So we have to realize that um, the way of the universe is actually this huge gift. Trees are just, right now, right out the window, trees are absorbing sunlight from 93 million miles away in creating liberation economies by creating community and relationship and, and giving. So the gift is a essential first step. Um, and it's not just money. Uh, again, whatever you have to give, it can be time, listening, inspiration, ideas, empathy, food, creativity, creativity, skills, insight. We need to broaden economy to everything that sustains us. Um, and that goes so far beyond uh, just this dollar bill. So when we think of gift, if you have a lot of capacity for listening, you, most people are already functioning in the gift economy in some area. The one really strong part of the gift economy right now is kids. We raise kids and give them all of this. It, when they're 18, we don't give them a check. Here's what you owe me. So how do we, you know, Vincent Harding from the Civil Rights Movement, who has passed an amazing leader and mentor, said, aren't they all our children? So it could be very radical to all reposition ourselves that if everyone's our child, we don't ask our children for owing, that all of a sudden we start to move into gift. Um, Robin Wall Kilmer, uh, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, an indigenous, amazing indigenous woman, just a few quotes about the gift I think are beautiful. Here's one. But when the food does not come from a flock in the sky, when you don't feel the warm feathers cool in your hand and know that a life has been given for yours, when there is no gratitude in return, that food may not satisfy. It may leave the spirit hungry while the belly is full. Something is broken when the food comes on a styrofoam tray wrapped in slippery plastic a carcass of a being whose only chance at life was a cramped cage. This is not a gift of life. This is theft. From the viewpoint of a private property economy, the gift is deemed to be free because we obtain it free of charge at no cost. But in the gift economy, gifts are not free. The essence of the gift is that it creates a set of relationships. The currency of a gift economy is, at its root, reciprocity. In Western thinking, private land is understood to be a bundle of rights, whereas in a gift economy, property has a bundle of responsibilities attached. So I started thinking about the gift. Another thing we, we'd say the Possibility Alliance tries to run on the gift economy, nothing is sold or charged as much as possible on the land. So people come, and that's most Westerners are like, oh, so it's free. And I think what was said there is, no, once once the gift is given, there's a beautiful obligation or bonding of how do you either, like water, 
spread the gift, take what access you've gotten from being able to come to the Possibility Alliance and get a training or get food or and pass it on. So sometimes that happens. People come from Kansas City, they get plants from our nursery and they plant them into an urban garden and then that gift moves on and keeps moving like water. What uh, is happening in capitalist society outside of the gift is we, if, if resources or energy like money is just in the bank, it's not flowing, how to have that in the system to both, it's a chicken and the egg. We actually need some money to build up systems to activate the liberation economies, but our goal is using that money to shift, not using that money to stay trapped. So that's the beginning of the gift economics, but we found that um, a lot of the gift economics we were practicing in the beginning was mainly creating a ripple with white people. And we were in rural Missouri and white people were showing up and we're gifting and they were gifting. And we just realized that that energy would be trapped within a white supremacist system unconsciously that we would just be like, oh, well, I'm relating to white people and white people are coming. And so then you have these pools of sharing that actually are leaving a lot of people out. Before we dive deeper into the gift economy, I'm wondering if you can just give a basic 101 overview of what the gift economy is for someone who's not familiar. Uh, I, I try to have examples with the sun or the tree, and it's that we, you receive everything you need and everything is shared. I feel like a, a true community is one. Your needs or gifts don't have to be bought or sold. So... We can look at uh, my experience in indigenous communities and what happened in nature-based societies all over the world is when you were born, you had, you didn't have to buy land. You were a part of the land in relationship with it. You didn't have to buy education. Elders and others showed you what you needed to be in relationship to this particular place, prairie, forest island and you were given strength from the ancestors and from healers and shamans and all that was a gift you you had this incredible sense of security and belonging and i i think it's so interesting that in capitalism we have to buy everything we 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 have to buy our birth we have to buy our death. We have to buy our mental health. We have to buy our healing. We have to buy our food. We're buying everything, but not getting most often our core needs met. And then outside of capitalism, the gift, you don't have to buy anything and all your needs are getting met. So it's a giving and receiving. There's the two arms of the gift economy is one is uh, giving and the other is receiving. The really vulnerable place I find is receiving. On, on bike rides where we'd go to 24-7, it was an experiment to just give. We dressed up as superheroes, Compassion Man and uh, Queen Bee and the Golden Rule and just showed up and would give whatever we could, whatever community we showed up in. And so often we would be 
told to go like one in Washington, go to Reverend B's. Her husband has died. It was the preacher and there's work in the house that's needed. And we show up and Reverend B, she takes us in and says, oh, before we work, sit down. And we singing on the piano and all these spirituals and she cooks us a meal. And it was more uncomfortable to actually be receiving and to realize when we receive that's a gift to the giver because that's creating all those things we need, belonging and relationships. So it's, uh, yeah, in gift economics, we are outside of anyone owing anything else. Great. And so I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit more about how this, the gift economy would work in the modern world, in this world that we have currently. Um, for example, these headphones that I'm using to record this podcast, I, I didn't have any headphones and um, so I needed to buy a pair and I went to the the closest place down the street, the dollar store, and I bought a $1 pair of headphones. And so I guess I'm wondering what the alternative to that would be in, in the gift economy. Well, as in our direct experiment of the possibility lines, which was imperfect, what started to happen is we would welcome people, we would feed them, we would house them, we would offer trainings like permaculture, for example, without cost and prepare the food and so as people came into that there was a beginning of a relationship and so when we for example needed a wheelbarrow or a shovel people would ask hey what could i bring and instead of uh what they don't have which might be money they might have a bunch of shovels because they're part of an urban project and they're like oh grab one of those old shovels or grab one of those broken shovels and they can fix it or we can fix it or all of a sudden trade and barter and all these other pieces start happening and there are areas where we might not be able to find that in exchange and so then we I, I like our Berkey filter is a great example that's very rare a gravity fed because we're without electricity so we have gravity fed drinking water from the rain so in that case we are back into capitalism so but i think as you go into the gift I, i'd like to talk about the other economies because i think it will start to make sense how they interplay and i want to go into the give back economy which i heard out of i um iowa city uh, give back economy is the idea is nothing's left out in the gift economy so if we are standing here on stolen penobscot land and we have a lot of our, as white people, a lot of intergenerational wealth from uh, the abundance from slavery and all these pieces that something has been stolen. Now, much more intense than that, lives have been killed, people have been kidnapped. Uh, in North America, in South America, it was estimated 86 million indigenous people killed, the largest genocide in human history, whole nations wiped out. So we the grief is we can't replace that. That is there. But the one thing that we can do in this white supremacist system is start to return what was stolen. It's just simple that if, if you had occupied my grandfather's house and pushed away my family, um, killing some and imprisoning some, and then you came to me as like, hey, let's... Uh, Let's get on with the new world. There'd be some real clear, wait, there's something that needs to be 
uh, return before there can be re reparations have to happen before we start reconciliation. So that's the give back as we realize, oh, these courses are all given him a gift, but we noticed very few queer, trans, people of color were showing up rural Missouri. Um, and we even would offer transportation costs. And that's when we started to realize that, wow, we are in such a bubble. And so the give back economy is basically starting to heal what can be healed. Resources are given with just fully given in the give back economy. There's no grants or applications. Just we know you are aware of what your community needs to be liberated. Here are the resources that were stolen. And I also believe in and want your liberation because we're tied in. I mean, that's the thing of the quantum physics. Like when someone is oppressed, I'm oppressed. You know, if I'm holding someone down, I have to be on top of them holding them down. So that's where we move into the give back economy. What can I give back? So we, we, we really started sending people to Detroit with the water shut off. How can I serve? Showing up to St. Louis and Ferguson and Standing Rock and and also started to say every gift we're receiving, 20% is going to black and brown and indigenous communities. Every donation. Every donation. <clears throat> so once you adjust to that, <clears throat> you know, if we get $100, we know we're getting 80 and then 20 is going. Um, and we start to participate in a giving back what was stolen, returning what was stolen to just help that wound and help that trust. As it started to happen, um, we it, it would be problematic to give that expecting anything. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, again, white people demanding relationship or demanding. It's just given. And then what started to happen is certain groups were curious, like, who's been sending us this these resources? And, and then we're showing up in these places. So all of a sudden, we're uh, building the relationship economy which is the third so give back is important we started to see people of color and other people coming to the possibility alliance for like a permaculture course and i believe that's because we started to activate the second missing piece i've learned a lot from charles eisenstein and sacred economics and the gift by lewis hyde and i, I for me what's missing is that analysis of heteropatriarchy, race, uh, white supremacy, because without that, I feel there's a big blind spot. So we start uh, functioning in the uh, reparations paradigm. And so you can just imagine what, what would happen if every organization or white household was returning 20%, what we'd see in shifts in poverty or you know going to Detroit and finding out that a black baby has four times the chance of dying at birth than a white baby and how to, again, instead of just going to a capitalist empire, oh, we'll just keep funding these hospitals, which are going to the 1%, they're predominantly white men. We start to say, hey, here's resources. Start your own clinics. You know deep healing. You, you're, you know how to do this. We wouldn't be telling him to do that, but when resources come, you can start to build the alternative. So then we go into relation economy, which is the other one we 
figured out helps us to be free. And the relational economy has two pieces, relation to people and community and relation to land, nature, and species. And <clears throat> I want to start with the land, nature, and species. And this is another quote from Leah Penniman from Soulfire Farm. Malcolm X talks about land is the basis of all power, all dignity, all freedom. And land doesn't just give us the opportunities to provide for our material sustenance and have businesses. It also gives us the capacity for autonomy and resistance. So as we, it's no surprise that our first act to participate in genocide of indigenous people was destroy their food sources and take them out of the land that they've been connected to for, in some cases, tens of thousands of years. So we have the desecration of the bison and the removals. Um, and that's, Empire knows that, that when we're tied into nature, it's, I need less capitalism when I'm tied into, I can get rain catchment. I can catch the rain that just falls. That's the gift economy. The most essential thing for life is falling from the sky. And yes, it's the gratitude. It's like we should just be running around. Like the most essential thing to life is falling from the sky because we are, have a colonized mind. We would go crazy if gold fell from the sky, which can't grow a tree, can't feed a goat or, you know, and that's just to show how much our minds have been colonized. So when we're tied to land, now I'm not having to pay for a big water system from the city that includes empire and fossil fuels. And and then if I'm growing food, all of a sudden we can eat instead of going to uh, supporting a GMO you know, food system. It gets It gets complex because I also understand why people are going to McDonald's. I've been to a lot of food security and food sovereignty gatherings and be like, hey, I can... I cannot be hungry for a dollar ninety nine. Whereas the uh, Van Jones calls it eco apartheid, it must we must be aware that their organic food movement is basically a movement that has no access and is playing out racism and classism, because you can't we we can't we decide to live under the poverty line by choice, which is very much different than forced poverty. But we we couldn't go to the farmers market with the amount of resources that we have. So we start to understand that there has to be a whole nother shift. So as we first create access for land, so one thing we are trying to do is we just help raise money for 200 acres for kinship community where um, indigenous women in Maine can be rooted on the land and have that abundance to then share that for healing and our, everyone's liberation. So those are, we have to be, if I'm going to be talking about relational economy to the land and I'm a white person occupying land, I have to, one, do the back to the land or permaculture. That's an amazing part of it. But if it's just back to the land without addressing how do I share that land or give that land or provide resources for other communities to be on the land, we're, we're never going to be free of empire and capitalism. So, And then we, we create land where everybody's welcome. Um, so we erase private property. And yeah, so this is, you can do the relational economy with nature anywhere. The moment you put a tiny food box, like I was just in Boston and staying with friends who had any 
piece of their lawn was growing food. Um, that's that starts to liberate you from that, and then these all start playing into each other. So the relational economy is also human in community relationships. So with my neighbors, when I say, "Hey, I'll go over and help you with your sheep," and you'll come over and help us put a building up, we're again removing capitalism because we're serving each other. Our bonds, on top of it, we're not only getting out of capitalism, our relationship is strengthening. We have a bond of support. When you're helping, uh, our friends had babies, so Sarah activated a baby moon where everyone cooks meals for a month. Not only are they getting sustenance, but they're getting belonging. We're, we're saying your baby is important to us and we, uh, we need to activate both of those relational to land and relational to people. East Point Peace Academy is a wonderful uh, experiment in the Bay Area that's based on the relational economy is how do we as a community figure out how to get our needs met? We have the resources. Carlos Cervedra of, um, who does amazing work in Cosecha is one of the projects that he was a co-founder of is that our community has everything it needs. How do we get out of these systems of individualism to just figure out who who's the healer? Who's the person who can play music and we can dance and and start to activate that? We again get freed freed up. So we have we've now looked at three liberation economies, the gift economy, the give back economy, or which is a reparations paradigm and the relational economy. And again, service is a form of relational economy. Whenever we do that, we are rebuilding the beloved community. And my experience and a lot of people participating, it's much more meaningful for me to offer holding space for someone who's struggling with, for example, suicide and offering support and love and comfort. The relationship that builds outside of I'm in a mental health crisis now I have to pay for it now I'm in debt now I'm more overwhelmed just the spiral that um, happens I mean we're the average American if you spread out national debt it's something like the average America's in $200,000 in debt it's like the system isn't working it's all just a huge system of debt that keeps us locked it's like the golden handcuffs you go to college and then you have to pay it back for the rest of your life and you can't live your vocation so yeah, I think it's, for people listening, it's one act. I think of Wangari Mathai, who won the Nobel Peace Prize from Kenya, an amazing African woman who came back and saw scarcity when she came back to Kenya and saw clear-cutting happening and the water table had dropped and all basically seeing that the relational economy was severed. And so then all of a sudden scarcity overtook these communities. And her first act was planting we need trees so she learned how to plant nine trees in her backyard then relational economy started to teach people how to do it fast forward and millions of trees have been planted and there's 6,000 nurseries just in Kenya I could we have to think of like what's the one act you're moved to do um, it could be what my friends also another house in Boston they just had a table out in front of their house that said take these and all the excess veggies when they would harvest would be on that table and just walking up to it, you could feel something different happening. Like, well, just take this. Like, oh my gosh, this is the kind of world I want to live in. So an act that small 
can affect thousands of people to reconsider where we're at right now. I think those examples are great. And and one thing I just want to reiterate is that this isn't just philosophical for you. You're actually living these economies to the best of your ability. And I think you're the first person to, to say you're doing so imperfectly. But um, yeah, it's quite beautiful for me as an apprentice to have witnessed these economies in action and to see that it's actually not that insane. <laughs> like it's sometimes it sounds overwhelming or like um, uh, kind of pie in the sky thinking, but actually seeing these in practice um, is really quite doable in a lot of ways. Yeah. At the end, I'm going to give some examples of a fully, these five, what we've found is these five liberation economies, when one of them is missing, the flow slows down. And I'll end by showing a few examples like uh, Healing Turtle Island, where all these are activated and what amazing things happen. I also stand here knowing that I had the privilege to jump into I'm giving everything away. And I, I, I did. I'm blessed that at that moment, I, I gave a third of the inheritance to dealing with poverty and classism, racism, and a third to addressing war and war zones and what that what our empire does to so many communities and a third I gave to friends and family just realizing like I but please use this for what's most important to you don't put it in the bank was the rule so you know some friends took that energy and gave it so kids in Baltimore with no access could go to camp people of color could go canoeing for a week and but once they started to do that that's the pieces that I once all the in the end, $150,000 was gone. I was like, any moment I would get any amount. It was just so amazing to see, wow, like water, I have the ability, if I am in community and supported, instead of hoarding for some future thing, I can, I can uplift and help, not as, I think, um, I'm really careful, as like not as a white savior or anything else, just like, here's an amazing project. Here's an amazing vision, and I can channel resources to that to to see the world that I want to see. Um, and uh, again, a lot of these uh, gifts are just we're not putting them on the wall. Here's who we gave to. We just give, and write clearly like there's nothing there's nothing to be returned. I think you know this is just the the flow. So you start to I think on a spiritual emotional level you start to get back to what is real human needs like what are actually we really needing what's the definition of wealth so i i stand on the paradox of my privilege and through white supremacy and all the things gave me the position to do this experiment and so now i'm learning the most from those who have in the most horrific oppressions created abundance in indigenous communities and black communities that are already far beyond what we're starting to figure out so now there's been you know becoming learning and trying to i think uh i guess to just say to start to try these and see what happens i guess i have some sadness arising me thinking about um the, the person who might be listening to this podcast that's living alone in a small apartment in a city and they don't have that sense of belonging, they don't have that community, 
um, and they're thinking like, yeah, like give away all my money, that would be, you know, almost a form of suicide in some respects. Like how, how can one participate in these economies when they don't have those, the safety nets of community and belonging to fall back on as you've been able to build yourself and, and, and this beautiful life that you live? Yeah, I, I think that's really important to, again, we have to go back to the gift is based on what you have a lot of. So you might be alone in your apartment um, and decide I'm a really great listener. And so it's a risk to break out of these patterns, but that could be just listening to a neighbor or listening uh, or and creating channels like on these service rides where we're biking and dumpstering our food and trying to serve people. Um, we were in Cottage Grove, Oregon and saw that there were elderly that were basically shut-ins. And so we started to reach out and say, hey, who wants to be the, uh, her super name, became, Jacqueline became supervisor, where we would all call her on the road and she'd call parents. And it was one of the heights of her time. So we also, that's the important part is if I'm not addressing that, I'm not in the city, but I, I need to lean in to see who is isolated in Belfast, you know, going to systems, uh, food banks or um, other programs to deal with homelessness, to actually be active in saying, hey, here's a way out. Uh, Vine and Fig is a great example, I think, of how to address this. The challenge is the Possibility Alliance is currently uh, for individuals and people who are here like yourself offering in, in Maine, we we have a certain capacity. There's like an actual holy limit of each person. And that's why we see nature-based societies usually had 150 or more people. You need a certain critical mass. And so it requires that everyone who has the extra energy, so you're like, oh, I'm gonna go, I have extra energy. I'm going to go travel all over the world. You can shift that to say, I have all this extra energy. How do I uplift this other person that's actually me that we're we are in it together so you start to create pathways uh, the vine and fig a great example is they are a small community that has one house for war refugees because they know they're part of the empire and they're saying well what if everyone did that instead of these huge camps that are not really supporting life um, in in many ways you're just can be trapped in a refugee camp for a long time. But if everyone could build a system for that, all of a sudden we can start to move into more support. One house is for people coming out of homelessness, but instead of people coming out of homelessness having worked in homeless populations, that most often you end up getting an apartment and a factory job. And a lot of people that I've talked to go back to being homeless because they feel more autonomy and more freedom. So instead, at Vine and Fig, I met a woman who was now studying nursing school and wanted to bring that back to her community to heal. So her vocation starts to be activated. And these are the, this is the model that Vine and Fig can't deal with the millions of homeless people in this country, which again is just a sign that colonial capitalism, there are people, millions of people being fully left out, family and, and children and and so you, we have to just start moving into it. And if we all start moving into it, 
I believe those circles of support will 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 rise us up if we're in like the pit of white supremacist colonial capitalism like each act is like a drip in the well that is like lifting this civilization up to something that is truly healing healing to the world nature healing to all peoples so it's um including ourselves yeah exactly it's like feeling how i feel when i can uh contribute and give resources to where there have been systematic scarcity scarcity that's systematic like in the inner city or on a reservation where it's you're being cut out of economy or health care so yeah we're again if one person rises there's a part of my spirit that's rising um so again it has to um i think we begin with what we have and figure out what we can give and begin there um it could be as simple as a flower I, uh, there's a famous quote in the concentration camps like the most astounding thing that I ever received that transformed my belief in humanity was someone who had nothing in a concentration camp left a note with three raspberries and it like reached through the barbed wire to get these three raspberries and instead of eating them gave them to someone else and three raspberries in those conditions was the most transformative moment of that receiver's life and i'm sure the giver you know to just um that's when the universe starts to move through us like the sun and that uh yeah to to take steps towards higher and higher capacity to move into these liberation economies um I think one important thing, though, is um, this is from Buddhism. Uh, they There's a whole part of three stages of generosity or giving. And um, one thing is motivation determines the emotional and spiritual effects. So I do notice when I give to look good or I give to like be the white savior, anytime I'm giving with a motivation that's for self-gain, I noticed that I end up being bitter that I gave or there's like the, the effects. So I think it's also important to really s be clear with our motivation. Um, I, I think that the beloved community will come from a reparations paradigm where we're just really clear like, wow, I'm so motivated to give as much as I can in land and resources to the communities because I, I feel it in my bones. Like I can't give back the, the destroyed cultures. And so there's such a upwelling. But if I give from a position of like guilt and shame, there's still going to that those resources could help. But there's there's still a limitation to how far we move to the beloved community. So motivation is important to to look at um, another the the fourth um, liberation economy which is for some people more difficult um, I'm just seeing if anything or questions in the last piece no I think I it might be good to just pause for a moment and recap where we're at so we've talked about the gift economy the give back economy and the relational economy and those are 
three of the five um, economies. And I guess uh, one thing that I just wanted to circle back on is um, a point that these economies are not five different choices. There are five that are interwoven together and, yeah. and, and work symbiotically. Is that accurate? Yeah. And I, I, once I go over all five, I'll give examples of them all working together and how they feed one another in a positive feedback loop. Um, I want to also just make sure, just in summary, the relational economy, the more we're linked to relationship with other human beings and communities, the more we're freed of empire and, and capitalism, the more we tie into natural systems, water, food, wild edibles, land, the more we're freed. And then also with the give back economy, we're both doing reparations. We're also doing redistribution because I think it's both dealing with white supremacy in all the ways that we've stolen wealth. And it's also dealing with classism that when we redistribute, I'm not waiting for the government to do something. I'm just realizing, wow, there's people without a home. What I need to, my heart wants to do something. So those are the three. And the fourth is reduction economy. We used to call it contentment economy, but most people practicing were like, I'm not feeling content right now. <laughs> but uh, Blen Casa, who is from, uh, had come to the United States from Ethiopia, she lived at the Possibility Alliance for two years and she inspired me by saying, you know, if we were actually content with what we have, if we have food, shelter, clothing in each other, if we're content, capitalism would not function anymore. But there's billions of dollars being pumped in to make us convinced we're not content and we need more. So we need to know that we're up against that every moment we turn on the computer, every moment we drive by the highway. There are messages that people who have been studying human psychology, like Google, they come out and say, we studied what was going to make you come back to check. And now we have um, uh, surveillance capitalism where actually computer programs can track what you want to buy and when you turn on your screen there it is it, so there's a lot moving to pull us away from liberation so reduction economy has again two pieces the first one is reducing doing without an object and experience so by activating liberation economies sarah and i have chose to not fly to vacation spots or not go to restaurants and a lot of things that we're deciding not to participate in, which then frees up extra resources to to do something else with. Um, not going to big Hollywood movie theaters. Now, if you remove something and you're really missing it, we move into the second one, which is the replacement economy, two prongs. We're not talking about suffering and doing entertainment is a human need. It's one of the 10 core needs that's been studied. So a big movie has amazing storytelling and imagery. And we know that a big blockbuster is tied into empire. Uh, so there's a high cost to that. So if I'm okay with reading a book out loud or listening to stories, that's great. I'm, I'm functioning in the reduction economy, which I'm reducing harm. 
That's the goal is you're reducing harm to peoples or to living things. But if you're really missing it, great. Try going to local community theater. So entertainment is a sacred need. Get your resources to the local community theater. It's incredible if you're in the city, find a BIPOC community theater. So not only are you going, you know, this is where we start activating all the economies. You can go there and get a ticket, buy 10 extra tickets for people who wouldn't have access to go to that. You know, go around town and saying, hey, go to the, you know, people who uh, are, are cut out. So then you're doing the gift economy, you're doing the uh, give back economy. So all of a sudden you're, you're supporting these local actors and their creativity, getting your entertainment needs met and not supporting a handful of actors making $30 million and creating haves and half nots. So that's an example of replacement of chocolate. Um, it's amazing. It's a sacred food and it has a high cost. You know, the, the cacao in Africa and cash crops and how we are pushing away uh, people's security. In my time in South America, the number one thing people wanted back was land. Here I was in Ecuador and the huge banana plantations and everything's going to the U.S. And to have to wrestle with that we're a 120th of the world's population and use one-third of the resources, this is an example of how the gift isn't going to work in that case. If I went to a birthday party and took the cake and left you a crumb and said, hey, why is there unrest? Why are there uprisings? You know, it would be really clear that we're not, the sun doesn't shine more on one tree than another tree. It's like this, this whole flow. So that's an example of the replacement economy. With chocolate, you could say, hey, let's try a, in Maine, if we're in Maine, a strawberry rhubarb pie. Let's try to um, find ways to replace that need for wonderful food that doesn't require a whole system of militarization and global transport that uh, is, is, is hurting the world. So re replacement economy is getting something you need on your heart's terms. So now I'm supporting local theater. Uh, Serenette and I are performing in local theater. During a play, they decided to at the end of the play, come out and say there's real issues in our town. It was a musical Scrooge. And my daughter, Isla, who's eight, is seven at the time, as Tiny Tim, raised money for From Above, which was a homelessness program in, in, to end homelessness in Belfast. So here, because of the relationship to community theater, all of a sudden the give back economy starts to be activated. <clears throat> and we again, are watching how reduction and replacement economy flow into each other. So we need community. So again, the larger the relational economy, if a bunch of us get together, like 20 of us are at the possibility line, so they're like, okay, what can I reduce that's creating harm? What can I, re what can I reduce because it's creating harm? It's not the world I want to see. Take one thing. That's what I would say to listeners is don't do 10 things. You go into overwhelm. We're in an intense time right now great unraveling. We have COVID. We have uh, the reckoning of like colonial capitalism and the great undoing. We have this sixth extinction and white supremacy. There's so much happening that we also have to honor our capacity. So take one. We would each choose like, wow, I want to stop going to movies, but go to local theater. I want to stop importing coffee, but I'm going to find something local that meets that need. 
So, you know, these are all things that relational economy helps because we have each other to support our creativity. Um, and it starts to become uh, creative, our imagination and creativity to create parallel systems that are less harmful and more outside of systems of oppression. So that's um, reduction and replacement. I think it's important to realize reduction and replacement kick in after you have your basics. If you don't have food, shelter, and clothing, or you're wondering if your black son is going to make it home from school and not get shot, these pieces make it very difficult to say, oh, how am I going to replace fast food? You know, which which is making my children not hungry. It's not, it, it's another form of oppression if I'm pushing reduction or replacement, but that's where if we're activating the give back economy and actually helping for alternatives, uh, following black leaderships to plant food forests in Kansas City and all of a sudden that starts to shift and create more space to start to imagine as, as Leah Peniman and Cherry Mitchell are talking about. And um, yeah, uh, Christine Nobis from Indigenous Iowa is just like, yeah, we're all reckoning that capitalism as it is needs to go. And yet we aren't, I, I, I'm not seeing as many maps of how it can look different. And I think the more those maps are and the resources to enact those maps and the the extra support to enact those maps. So it becomes relational is key or it will never happen. And give back is key or it will never happen. We'll just have the have nots and haves. And so that's an important part of reduction and replacement. But we see, you know, when I was in Detroit, I saw this happening is water's cut off, 30,000 homes without water, no sewage. It's incredible to stand there and the heartbreak of watching racism played out in real time in, you know, 2000, 2012, 13, 14, 15. And these communities were building community gardens and putting up rain catchment and starting to realize that when we're, like Leah Peniman said, tied into these systems, there is a power over because the white supremacist systems can just turn the water off. Here is the Detroit lions who owed hundreds of thousands on their water bill kept having water and we talked to a black woman who she had paid her water bills had it on paper and here the trucks were coming with police to turn off she was sitting on the turnoff valve and the trucks came physically even she had the payment this is a mistake this is a mistake there are her kids that need water physically ripped off of that and then she tries to protect the water the two workers call the police. The police came and who do you think was arrested? So the black mom is taking the police car. There are kids in the house. And this is the beginning of, you know, seeing how systemic it is. So that's where we can be, you know, when I was in Detroit, it would be amazing if all these white permaculture places had were ready to move, not to come save us, but to come say, hey, you need gutters, you need like to respond to what the community is calling for. Again, following their leadership. I would love a world like that if all of a sudden all the permaculture institutes were showing up and saying, what can we do? 
we want to follow your lead because often the community knows what to do. It's just been cut out of the resource. Their water's turned off. They can't even drink. So we have to start to imagine really robust systems from the white community to come ready to follow leadership with all of our skills and what we have to offer. And it's amazing. I, that's where I learned in Detroit. It's like, wow, how powerful and resilient these communities are that even within this oppression, they're, they're up singing together and planting food and putting up rain catchment. And in a lot of areas, it's illegal to catch rain. It's illegal to like take any water out of the river. So structures are built to actually make liberation economies illegal. When, when Ithaca money, which was a resource that wasn't an American dollar bill, when your original question started to get big enough that health providers started to take Ithaca money, I forget what it was called. You know, they have different names for, that's when the federal government came in and said, illegal, shut it down. Once it actually starts to replace the dollar bill, which is tied to empire, that's when you see the Black Panthers, incredible inspiration, feed the people, let's start feeding them and having food and having community. And once they started to not need white supremacist capitalism, that's when the guns are loaded and leaders are killed, are murdered and put into jail. So we have seen these liberation economies over and over in indigenous and black communities and the empire comes because it's a threat. And that's where we, again, to the capitalism empire thread is what's so key. But the beautiful thing on a spiritual level, when we're doing this work, we feel alive. We feel more connected. We feel more belonging. I now have incredible friendships with uh, indigenous and black and brown people because there was something built of like, yeah, I'm returning what was stolen, something, you know, reparations and then reconciliation. If it happens, again, the key that the relationship has to be asked for from the space of oppression. And so all of a sudden, our life's so much more richer. Um, and my girls' lives are so much more richer because they're in, they're in connection with um, this amazing relational economy. There's one economy left, but I want to stop there and just see. There's something coming up for me that might be uh, too tangential to go into detail now, but it reminds me of the man, in, the African-American man in Detroit who called you out um, or called the group out on um, not buying a house because it's part of the capitalist system. In and Memphis. In Memphis. Yeah. In Memphis. And um, it, it sort of reminds me a little bit about the billions of people that are in so-called developing countries that haven't gotten a full taste of the material wealth that many in America have. They haven't had individual cars and big suburban houses and plasma TVs and can fly all over the world to go on vacation. And um, yeah, I guess I'm wondering a little bit about like, for me, I find it easy to say to someone like oh stop flying you know stop flying and or stop going on vacation you know internationally and you know we, we can't afford that but i've traveled to like over 30 countries before in my lifetime so it's easy for me to say that it's easy for me to not eat chocolate anymore when i've had you know <laughs> chocolate pretty much every other day for 30 uh -huh. years and so what is that balance between um doing 
kind of the work in our own world and for our own experience and also um, sort of loving others on that path as well for where they're at and um, not maybe creating not creating a, a system of shame around these economies does that make sense yeah i i think you know key work is shame resiliency and being able to speak our shame and to have it be heard is as one of the Brene brown's work more transformational work and i think um you just brought that up and it's the fifth economy that takes on some of these pieces and it's i call it the awareness economies and it has to do with uh, mindfulness and gratitude on one uh, branch and the other branch is trauma healing and grief work and shame healing that um it's if you read braiding sweetgrass which i highly recommend or an incredible revolutionary suicide by lenny's pinkard um, braiding sweetgrass Robin Wall Kimmer just speaks about how gratitude is such a base of the gift economy like to be thankful and to give thanks and so in the awareness economy we feel like if, if we're not we have to change our awareness and how we're seeing the world so the one branch that you're talking about is the branch of trauma healing uh, and grief work and working on shame and uh, while we we have we've all received trauma from western civilization and there's a wonderful book by chalice glending that's um, i'm recovering from western civilization my name is chalice and i'm recovering from western civilization now the levels of trauma are different someone might have indigenous communities total eradication of their culture the removals of land the removals of children the removals of culture, uh, genocide. And so that's, that's just so much trauma um, that has been wrought by colonialism and, and the structures of uh, doctrine of discovery. And, but we all also at the same time need to honor that the trauma of not being born into a whole community not having 300 eyes saying what is your function in the community how can we support you we're born knowing that we're going to have to pay for what we need if we're going to function it's not going to be given to us and that's traumatic colonial capitalism is traumatic to experience that if you don't have this thing you're going to be homeless or dead um, that's not about belonging or the beloved community so trauma healing and this is really important because as we heal we reduce fear and anxiety and in trauma work it says the less trauma the more we can see clearly and to act and so this goes hand in hand if we're not really looking at our shame or if we're functioning out of our shame we're, we're recreating what we're not wanting so if all of a sudden i start functioning from a reparations campaign and all of my white family around me, I'm saying, you're white supremacist, you're, you're, you're racist. Um, that will be heaped on, that trauma that will more likely shut them down than having them actually shift to these liberation economies. So, um, yeah, being vulnerable. So the, the first awareness economy is just 
the care of home. Economics is the care of uh, doing trauma work, doing grief work, doing shame work. Um, the reverse of those being authentic, being vulnerable, reverse side of the coin. So I can be vulnerable and share my struggles playing into heteropatriarchy and saying, yeah, I know it's hard. Like I've been doing work for years and I'm still playing out subtle forms of verbal abuse to my wife and partner who I love so much and I can't even see it or um, I'm still participating in forms of white supremacy and it's heartbreaking and I don't know what to do. So starting with like a, for example, my, my, that can also be a gift is sharing with my own vulnerability so we feel like, oh, we're all in this together. It's not, you're the white supremacist and I'm not or I'm, so yeah, it, that's the complexities of these liberation economies that we, if we're not tending to our wounds, these economies can never fully be like the sun or be like a tree will be limited because we won't have healed what needs to be healed. This also plays into give back economy because if we're not giving back, those communities that um, are doing trauma work and healing need the space and time to do it. And when you're just trying to feed your family or stay alive, it's really hard. So how do we, again, this is how they all, again, play into each other. So that's one branch. The other awareness economy that... Um, so many uh, Kazuhaga um, from East Point Academy talks about mindfulness and gratitude. Like if we are having mindfulness practice, whether meditation to calm our nervous system or other pieces, it strengthens our ability to take those risks because we're coming from a grounded place. Um, also, we have gratitude, which I find the the gratitude branch of the awareness economy is just so filled in the indigenous community going to, I'll, I'll talk about it in a moment, Healing Turtle Island, it's 45 minutes of gratitude for the sun rising, like waking up with the sun rising and it's a 45 minute ceremony of just gratitude and thanks and how that reciprocity just is linked. And if we, um, gratitude is a practice of awareness of just realizing also what we have. There's still air to breathe. There's water falling from the sky. And I think the Western mind focuses on what's lacking. You get your report card and you focus on where's the D? Oh, yeah, you did this, but you could do this. It's always this move towards not mastery, but some warped perfectionism. And so uh, I think that's the that's one of the colonized mindsets is just we're focusing on we're for capitalism work. We don't have enough. We need more. We'll be happy if we get this. I'm not enough. We need more. So. Gratitude starts to shift that. So I have to, if someone calls me in, I need to really listen deeply and take that in. But to have resiliency to keep going, I also have to say, hey, and look where I was. Like I was physically fighting people and I was around a culture where people were overdosing and dying from substance abuse. And I was there. And so I also have to have gratitude like, wow. I have, I've come a far away and I have further to go. So the gratitude is, I think, really important because we start to see, wow, there, there is so much supporting me, whatever situation, the raspberries, 
It's the gratitude for the raspberries. I'm in Auschwitz and these things can, uh, Viktor Frankl says like when we are connected to a purpose and realize we have a, a spiritual function, it keeps us alive. You know, it keeps us moving, keeps us moving on. So that's the last one, which I, I hope starts to answer your question of how do we be aware that these uh, liberation economies without that awareness of shame and verbal violence and that we're all have trauma they can become they can become part of the empire system of just who's good and who's bad or you know these these splits it almost seems like the awareness economy needs to be like what one we need to swim in the pools of the awareness economy before to some extent before one can even open up to the other four is that is there sort of a, a path through these economies or are they all like a circle and they're all happening simultaneously or how does one begin to approach these uh, I, I found being around uh, thousands of people who have come through the possibility alliance or moving towards other projects like uh, Sherry Mitchell's project Wabanaki-led project like Healing Turtle Island or Kazuhaga and East Point Peace Academy. People been drawn to people who are activating these liberation economies. And what I see is that whatever one is drawing you to begin with is the entry point. Uh, I've seen people who start with a reduction economy and they start to realize like, wow, this is really causing harm to people. Um, or to the planet, and so I'm going to reduce it. It's not just some uh, simplicity movement. It's actually reducing harm. So they enter that, and then from entering that, you start to have these, well, I'm replacing it. Well, why aren't these people moving away from harm? Like it's going to lead, if you're really opening to it, to the next question. If you start with the relational and just help people in your community, I think that's going to live lead to the gift economy and lead. So I see the because they're intertwined, one will bring the other. And, you know, my path was I'm going to give everything away and try to equalize and help with the, you know, the suffering. And then that led to relational and reduction and the give back and then the awareness. And so that's another thing I'm saying is these are maps and we've been um, imperfectly living in these maps for 20 years, uh, my partner and I, and giving ourselves without a salary and trying to see how can we function with a little bit as little of um, the capitalist economy or taking resources from the capitalist economy. Right now, we're transferring land in Missouri and there's hopefully this wonderful collective of women who are going to move into the land. They're attracted to getting that piece of land because said three quarters of the money is going to go towards indigenous groups repurchasing stolen land. So anytime that's a capitalist exchange, but in the conversation on the phone with this collective, they're like, yeah, we realize like it's all this is blood money. How do we like shift it so that, okay, this is going into, in a sense, the capitalism circle is ending because we give it some to, for example, some is going to kinship community, which is a Wabanaki women led once that land is purchased and it becomes a trust for for as as long as it can, 
capitalism ends at that point and something new begins because it's going to be running in the gift. So it's like transformative, just like I'm transforming my racism to something more beautiful. Like I believe we can take the dollar and transform it into something like land for Wabanaki people for their liberation, which our liberation is tied into. And then that is transformed. And it, there's a certain point where money stops. And so I know in kinship community, Deb Soul, who runs the Vina Botanical, is going to have community herb gardens. So there all of a sudden there's a pathway for the most marginalized in Maine to have access to a different kind of healing. So all of these things start to shift. So yeah, entry point, whichever one speaks to you. Uh, I, I find also relational usually is one that activates early on because you're like, whoa, I really want to do some give back. I'm scared. Call a friend. Hey, you want to do this together? So then the relational is happening. Um, so yeah, again, once you start one, usually in some way the others are activating. Um, I just have, I think, two last things that are live and then if there's any questions or if there's questions now i guess i'm wondering if um if someone who's listening to this is a business owner already say they're already fully ingrained in the capitalist system and they have um let's say a restaurant or um you know a small just a regular small business uh, a bicycle shop how can someone um, incorporate these economies into the capitalist structure that they're already a part of that that's what's beautiful is we see this I see it as succession. And I think there's a lot of businesses run by white, BIPOC, queer, trans that are kind of this transition piece, cooperatives. There's a lot of ones that are transitioning from white supremacist empire capitalism to something new. So this this transition piece, succession that we need to, when there's an empty lot, you just don't go to trees. That's like magical thinking. There's like limits to the world that are holy. So you go from dandelions that break up the rubble and the soil, and then you get some dynamic accumulators that come in. And then slowly there's like bushes that come in. If you see an empty lot and watch it in the city, all of a sudden, 20 years, there's trees. So there has to, there is a process that has to occur. So for example, one of, I'd love getting calls from whatever scenario. I'm a lawyer. I'm a, how do I do it? And I just make guesses and then all of a sudden the creative is like, okay, if you have a bike shop, okay, like the bike shop in town, Chris uh, in Belfast, he said, yeah, I want more community access. So he put a bunch of tools out uh, that are, you know, on wires so they can't be taken, but tools that are usable by the community. So a headset ranch, so you don't have to pay $20. You can just come and do some things on your bike. He also is like, well, I want access. So I'm going to want to build up where I have strip parts of donated bikes that people can come in and they can get a derailleur for $2 instead of $50. So that's an example of starting to shift. Now I could also, any restaurant or anything else that's on occupied land of a certain area could say, you know what, I'm going to start with 2%. 2% of everything coming in is going to go back to the Penobscot. If every, in, every business in Belfast did that, all of a sudden we'd be moving hundreds of thousands of dollars back to where it had been stolen. Um, and I think once that happens, what I see is once once a project starts to move in that direction of the beloved community, 
um, even though there's lots of pressure to move it back, it's a it's a it's a feedback loop of okay, great. And then what happens when a business does that? More people come. More people want to support it. It's like oh my gosh, you're giving these free tools outside. What a cool bike shop. Uh, there's some bike programs that are bike and builds. A kid can come in and help the mechanic work and then get a free bike. So all of a sudden, um, from just trying to shift out of capitalism, the bike shop becomes actually a place of community healing. This happened with the game store in town. An amazing, like a game shop, board game shop. They opened in like the mid-90s and then all of a sudden after school, a certain group of kids who are mainly the outcasts and were showing up and finding community there and they would let them play a game and they realized there was healing and mentorship a lot of these kids didn't get food so they started to make food for them now out of that came the game loft which is above the game store five days a week kids can go after school have community they have board games and they're connecting whether it's chess or you know um, ticket to ride whatever they might be playing and then they now have a program that pays for someone comes in to cook and all the food so instead of like a handout like oh you're poor you need food it's just all this food is there and so they go up and eat and so it's a very it's dignity and then they to be part of it they have to do 200 hours of community service when they're in high school to stay part of that community so this is just an example how a game store became something so much more and when someone walks by the game shop they're like whoa this supports the game loft like it actually is doing what I was talking about with the kinship community. It's taking the empire dollar and transferring out to something more healed lives, mentorship. So yeah, restaurants are the same. You can start to say like, okay, I, I could, we're throwing away a lot of food. Let's reach out to local farmers and compost it, or let's find a way to food, not bombs or the food bank. Um, my friends who started a gift economy, take root cafe. They have a, set donation for a meal they say you can pay extra and then there's this tree that shows how many extra meals there are so you can see like oh there's no extra meals right now oh there's 400 extra meals and so all of a sudden people can come in and they can work in the back they're trained and they can get a free meal from doing some um, it's not a handout it's a hand up it's like let's work together um yeah so it's it's um mutual aid like that's Tick Root Cafe is still running and a lot of people support it because they're dealing with classism and food scarcity. Um, and yeah, so just doing one of those things to begin with is how to do it where it's not overwhelmed. Oh, I'll put some tools out or I'll, um, we'll offer food to the food bank. Like just starting to make space. And even if you are feeling scarce because you're a small business owner, you can put it out to the community, like put a write-up, put it in the paper, hang it up on your store window saying, I really want to do X, Y, and Z. I need help. You know, that's where you're building the relational economy and then trusting that a few people will come by and be like, hey, I love doing this. I'd love to find it. Uh, I'd love to find it. I'm working on food scarcity. I'd love to find an avenue. And that's that takes that moment to make the phone call to the food bank or to the community garden saying, I have a restaurant. What can I do? Usually there's someone on the other end that will make it happen. Um, so, yeah, but any, you know, anyone listening, if they want to call 207-338-5719, I'm happy to just guess and be creative. Again, there's no one right answer. 
It has to be the answer that is like, yes, that's what I want to do with my restaurant. That's what I want to do with my game store. A lot of time it emerges. The older couple just saw kids were showing up and then it started to emerge because they were open to moving to um, our liberation from death of the planet and death of ourselves. So, um, And as we see with the uprisings, things are moving fast and and people are talking about things that were fringe, like universal health care and universal um, basic. basic income. And so this is a great time to activate. Beautiful. I think uh, one point that hasn't fully been mentioned, um, but is very evident to me and, and what I've witnessed in terms of these five economies in, in action, is just the amount of joy that they bring. Like, it's just a more fun, beautiful world. Um, and I think when people think about the economies or shifting out of capitalism, man, that just sounds daunting. That sounds traumatizing. It sounds um, miserable. <laughs> but actually, what's on the other side of that is endless amounts of joy in a lot of ways. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I, 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 I know I've mentioned this before and thinking about wanting to make an anniversary special and having multiple times friends cook a meal and offering in trade or what, what they might need to be abundant and then pulling up to a friend's house with my partner, Sarah, and going inside and all of a sudden there's a little menu and it's like, welcome. And all of a sudden we are um, supporting new ways of, of celebrating each other instead of our uh, capitalism makes us have a very small palate. Let's go out to dinner and see a movie. You know, let's go to the bar. Like, there's a very small palette, but we start imagining, like, um, relational economy is land. It's like I, I go back to Gloucester, and a lot of my friends I love are like, let's go to a restaurant, let's go to the bar. And I say, okay, those are three choices. Here, let's be creative. Let's go sledding. Let's go tide pooling. Let's go to the beach and play stickball. Once the other palette is fleshed out, all of a sudden they're like, yeah, let's go play stickball at the beach. And we're able to connect outside of capitalism. And often when those things happen, friends are like, well, that was great when you were back and I'm 40 years old and we all went sledding and we're laughing so hard. Like with these liberation economies, they're liberating not just life. They're liberating all these things that are essential to us, belonging, joy, laughter, meaning, purpose. And so stickball on the beach isn't going to happen when we're not taking a moment to breathe in and be creative because we're we're handed a very small menu of what it, what we 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 go on vacation you know there's a small menu when actually there's so much uh, that let's go walk in the woods let's discover i mean a lot of people come to the possibility lines those things are like discovering a wild edible or collecting fiddleheads they're like oh my gosh that was amazing we went into the woods we collected this and we fried it up and ate it it's like the experience isn't like yeah we're getting out of colonial capitalism we're not even thinking of colonial capitalism now we're just thinking of we're getting food from the land we are feeding each other we're in relationship with nature and each other and at the end of the day we have moved into liberation I think the important part to balance it is that if I'm just focusing on, hey, we're at the PA, people can come and not have to pay and go get fiddleheads, 
there's a point where we we have to take in the give back economy or classism or racism because we have to realize I would love the response at the end of the day not to be, oh, I'm a white supremacist. But hey, there are people that don't have access to land, don't have access to the resources they need to do this awesome thing we just did. I want everyone to do this awesome thing. I want everyone and 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 that the original nations, the hundreds of nations on Turtle Island before colonization, we're all doing this incredible thing in a place of gratitude and gift. And so, uh, yeah, releasing those structures. So there is a balance of earlier. I felt like I really focused on like the joy and I'm so alive and I and in sacred economics, all these things that are true. But it's just a I don't know how to thread this needle. But if I just focus on that and don't have a greater analysis, it can stay again within a privileged class that's getting that. So again, I think full life is focusing on the joy and the pain, focusing on the cure and the wound. Like in healing, <clears throat> we need both. If we're just focusing on, yeah, come free, this amazing thing, but we weren't understanding, wow, this can get affected and go septic and kill me. Like they're I think that balance is where we are with life again. And so I I need the balance of reading out loud to my daughters on the porch in the wind in balance with going to the Say Her Name march for six hours and listening to black women and just having my heart open and broken. You know, I need both of those wings to keep moving. Um, so it's, you know, that combination of medicine is for each person to find because we all have different gifts of resiliency or, you know, listening or healing, depend, you know, dependent on uh, our positionality. So, um, yeah, so there's both. But yeah, of course, the, the gift is like coming back to that Hafiz, it's like, yeah, what would you hear when you hear that poem? And um, that the something that really inspires me, I want to read it the, to the end that will, you know, speak to that joy. I feel like this, it's from Japan. The story like really captures what you're talking about is looking at the beauty of purpose and meaning and also responding to where there's harm in the moment and that, that, that those like two wings. Um, but I wanted to also give an example of all these working together. And before that, I want to just read something from Lenise Pinkard, who uh, Reverend Lenise Pinkard wrote Revolutionary Suicide, Risking Everything to transfer, Transform Society and Live Fully. She so deeply interwove capitalism into racism and white supremacy and colonialism and the sixth extinction and climate change and the, the destruction of communities of color. It's that I think we have to, the big reckoning is to just really see that capitalism is a big linchpin for the global economic, military, racist, industrial complex. Again, which can be overwhelming, but if we go back to Wangarai Mathai, our first step, our first step is I'm going to share this. Well, Sarah and I made a commitment never to walk by someone who is homeless or hungry. So our daughters get the joy of if we're 
sitting in the Chicago train station and someone comes and we, hey, what's your name? Sit with us. And for someone to like sit with the family and feel trusted and and do whatever we can, like that's that's uh, that's the step. Is it ending? You know, I could tell that story to someone and then we're sharing food with them and food that we made and we're sitting with them for three hours. And sometimes we'll give resources so they can have a shelter over their head for a month. Is that ending poverty? Is that ending homelessness? No. And we need to. And it's the first step of what will Ed and Isla do? Memories from two of seeing that they are people. And that's the trust of like, Sarah reminds me, like this liberation economies or the beloved community is a generational work. It's been generations to create empire and shut us down. And it's it's just, again, the limitations is like we have to trust that act um so lenise pinkard says this when we consider our identities in relation to domination we realize the manifold ways in which we have structured our lives and desires in support of the very economic and social systems that is dominating us to shake free of this cycle we need to embrace a radical break from business as usual we need to commit revolutionary suicide by this, I mean not the killing of our bodies, but the destruction of our attachments to security, status, wealth, and power. These attachments prevent us from becoming spiritually and politically alive. They prevent us from changing the violent structure of the society in which we live. Revolutionary suicide means living out our commitments, even when it means risking death. But the end of this article just comes to the fact that we end up living a better, more full life. Like we end up alive when we wake up, which is what everyone's wanting. Bungee jumping and all these things are like momentary highs that is like just the feeling of a ride of like, wow, we're, we're alive. We're doing something to heal. And so Again, even in an intense article like that, the end message is like we are part of this. We're part of life for billions of years, returning to what is life-giving for, for all life. So um, so I want to use um, a, a friend and an amazing mentor, Sherry Mitchell, who um, I got to participate in Healing Turtle Island last year. And I'll use this example, especially as someone who's a white settler, to walk into this space. So it's Nabizan, which is a piece of land, stolen land, repurchased by the five, uh, five tribes. It had a burial ground and a holy place on the Penobscot River. So this is a back in indigenous relationship to the land, and they're inviting anyone to come to Healing Turtle Island in the gift. So you don't have to pay. So we we begin with just it's based in the gift economy it's basically giving and receiving everyone comes and trusts that the abundance will come and then uh so that alone is like just an amazing healing to be uh, to be invited to this place so a part of the five days is both hearing from dozens and dozens of indigenous groups about both their struggle and oppression and healing and also then there's ceremony through the whole piece so we start to see the awareness economies function that we're we were doing trauma work um, everyone was positioned um, 
two-spirited as they call trans and queer and male-bodied female-bodied and healing doing trauma work in the moment as a large group to heal trauma and the same time gratitude everyone waking up at five to to witness again not appropriate but appreciate these ceremonies that are led by indigenous people calling up the sun giving thanks to the food and um bringing our children, black, brown, white children in the middle to be blessed by the indigenous elders. And my daughter, Etta, went in there and said, oh, I thought it was going to be like rainbow gathering where you go in and they sing to you for three minutes and say, okay, now it's time for us, to, the adults, to dance and party. 45 minutes, the, the kids got sung to. And I was just weeping and Etta came out and she's like, wow, I've, I've never felt so important. You know, so we have we have gratitude and mindfulness coming in. We're in prayer, we're in silence, we're in ritual. And then we look at relational where all the food came from, donated by local organic farms and from the indigenous communities. There was a vegetarian line for those who chose to eat in that way with food within 50 miles that was all grown locally. And then there was a table with bear and moose that was offered and blessed and and then the relational economy, anyone could come at any time and help cook. So there are some main cooks, but it's like, okay, we need to chop this. We're talking over the weekend, 1,300 people that you're feeding and housing with no capitalist exchange. Uh, and I'm there, everyone's feeling living into this new, you know, these liberation economies, this reciprocity, however we want to call it. And then... I didn't ask Etta or Isla to go to help cook, but there I walked by and there they were like cutting vegetables. Like they just, it's inherent that we want to contribute. We're being fed. And so it was just this great trust that there was going to be the relational to the land. And then we're also the rivers there. People are swimming in the river and having connection to nature. So the relational economy is being uh, built into it. And then the reduction is we were doing without. Most people were tenting. We're eating what could be brought from local areas for food, and that was enough. We were okay with it, and we were replacing computers and TV and cell phone. I didn't see anyone or any cell phone or computer. It was just us being together, humans with nature and with spirit. Um, and I didn't notice anyone. I saw so many kids just so alive for five days. Like that's that to me is the litmus test. It's like. I, Daddy, I want to go back to Healing Turtle Island. Like there's this incredible freedom. And then there's the give back economy, like reparations and reconciliation are happening. People will then be moved to give to Nabizan and give to Healing Turtle Island and, and get exposed to, okay, now I can come back and participate. Um, Wabanaki Reach, a lot of these amazing uh, projects that are indigenous led that need support for the healing and support so their leadership like sherry's leadership and others involved in healing turtle island we saw for five days with 1300 people very tiny signs of empire capitalism and to believe that every event can happen like that of course there's a lot of connecting but that just making that event they had to reach out to local farms and so the local farms like wow I'm contributing to this so just like that store this farm that's selling to the co-op that might be a bit of eco-apartheid to people with more wealth can be like wow here's an avenue where I can give all this food to this amazing gathering so not only is that happening for the 1300 people there 
It's happening to the hundreds of farmers, the hundreds of hunters the hunt that, that contributed to this event. So in the amount joy, belonging, healing that comes from just five days. And so now there's the kinship community that's imagining this year round. And so we start to have places that um, that people can walk into the possibility alliance with our, you know, there are still so many blind spots to be revealed and that people can come here and experience something different. They can be here for a week, eat from the land, have housing, be here and experience there's no bill at the end. And if they leave, they may move that gift forward through a story or they may decide to uh, contribute to us. And we, in many ways, they might say, oh, what are you needing? And we might say, oh, we really need some Falcos or whatever we might need. And so we just, the more areas of the embodiment um, of it happening, like Soul Fire Farm or East Point Peace Academy or we we then start it, it's it's it spreads i mean you don't you don't go to a mall and come out and be like yeah i want to build a mall i mean unless you're really in the Somebody colonized does. mind <laughs> but most people but you go to a thing like this and you just see what it feels like to be welcome like the the amazing thing about in nature-based people it's called the primal matrix is like what the people held in the three qualities are security in the world that trust and faith you're born and you're going to be cared for without needing to like owe anything and the other one is just a belief in your capacity that you have a divine purpose in the human family in so many nature-based cultures around the world they were praying and asking in the dream world before the baby was born what's the purpose and then everyone's watching this child oh they're going to be a great storyteller they're going to be a great dugout canoe maker they're going to be a great um they're watching because we also need a vocational, you know, in liberation economy, economies, it's also activating what most is abundant in you from the gift of spirit into the world. So you also have like purpose and capacity. Why so many people are lonely and depressed? A big function of that and my belief in knowing my own struggles with depression and is lack of purpose and meaning. Like, well, I'm not serving anything in the world, so why be here? But if we had a whole culture of finding like in these liberation economies, here's your gift. We want it. We need it. Each person is so essential right now. They're on the planet for a reason. And if we don't unlock and find that gift, that's a great sorrow for our community. And so we are uh, when we're in the full liberation economy, it doesn't feel like work. You know what's happening at Healing Turtle Island or it. it uh, on the days where it's really working, it just feels like a blessing. It comes back to it feels like gratitude. And at the same time, we're unraveling harm. You know, something that, you know, if we look at nobody I know when they, you know, uh, I'm thinking of City of Hope, amazing documentary about what's happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And heartbreaking to see where the coltane and precious metals for the computer camps are exactly where the mines are, are the highest rape epidemic. So, you know, we can just look like we're raping the earth and raping female body people at the same time, that connection. The connection works on the reverse. When we're healing the earth and nature, we're healing that incredible connection with the female body. And, the, and so nobody, says, nobody I know says they want this to be able to 
use you know technology that is being implemented right now and so we have to start we, we are starting and we need to trust that impulse that it is true we can live without harm we can be like a tree where everything that it's doing is creating abundance and love and creation and we just need to re reclaim that um so i want to end with this um true story that I feel like really captures the liberation economy. I want to thank um, Healing Turtle Island for a great example of how the economies all feed into each other. So this is from Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and it's a true story. Um, it's called Publishing the Sutras. Tetsugen, a devotee of Zen in Japan, decided to publish the sutras, which at that time were available only in Chinese. The books were to be printed with wood blocks and an addition of 7,000 copies, a tremendous undertaking. Tetsugan began by traveling and collecting donations for this purpose. A few sympathizers would give him a hundred pieces of gold, but most of, the, most of the time he received only small coins. He thanked each donor with equal gratitude. After 10 years, Tetsugan had enough money to begin his task. It happened that at that time the Yuji River overflowed. Famine followed. Tetsugan took the funds he had collected for the books and spent them to save others from starvation. Then he began again his work of collecting. Several years afterwards, an epidemic spread over the country. Tetsugan again gave away that he had collected to help his people. For a third time he started his work, and after 20 years his wish was fulfilled. The printing blocks which produced the first edition of sutras can be seen today in the Obaku Monastery in Kyoto. The Japanese tell their children that Tetsugan made three sets of sutras and that the first two invisible sets surpassed even the last. Um, this, in my 20 years of experiment, is so rich for many reasons. And one, what is given is all holy. I think of Jesus, who's resisting Roman Empire and was a person of color that was filled with love that said like if someone gives one penny and has two is worth more than someone who gives a bag of gold who has a thousand bags of gold like the gift economy is magic in that it's like what we have available if you give a piece of it it's not the actual thing it's what you gave up what you released into the system and I also love that we all have a soul calling so if our sole calling is to have bikes in our neighborhood so people could be more healthy and or our sole calling is to make sure we have food um, for our people or whole, whole sole calling is trauma work as we move towards it, we are responding in the moment. So there's this balance in the liberation economies that we move towards what our heart is calling and we stay in emergence with what's happening and realize that if we get hooked, if Tetsugan got hooked on the blocks, we end up starting to be in a thing, capitalist mentality. But he kept responding, and then the blocks, which were sutras from the Buddha to help help us be whole, came about. But I think that that story just opens this balancing as we move into it, um, and that when there was need, the gift just flowed and with full joy. And at the end, without trying, the two original sutras are the most celebrated, which is just this piece of, yes, we could have Buddhist blocks, but instead we had a transformed world and 
the printing blocks. So I wish everyone blessings as they move into this. Liberation Economies is a working title. I'm very open in the Possibility Alliance to feedback. If you have experience of economies that, again, care of home that are missing, these have all been built. These, these, it started as just a gift economy. We built these five economies, and they're, they're from people saying, you're missing this or this piece. So we're really open to grow this map and know that it's helped lots of people to just start thinking differently. And once we can see a way out, I'm sure the creativity that will come back, share your experiments, we'd love to hear from you. And yeah, just um, blessings with our movement back to being uh, the beloved community again with all life and all people. Thank you, Ethan. If you'd like to contact Ethan, he can be reached at 207-338-5719. That's 207-338-5719. The Possibility Alliance mailing address is also available in the show notes. Until next time, I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Have a beautiful day.